Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for May the 15th, 2018. My name's Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host. And I'm joined in studio by 538's own Kyle Wagner. Hey Kyle. Hey Neil. And a big welcome back to the show for our fellow 538 sports writer and co-podcaster, Chris Herring. Hey Chris. Hey, Neil. What's going on, man? Uh, not much. Uh, we're going to talk about the opening game of each conference today uh, and kind of dig into each series uh, and, and what a couple interesting games those were. But first, let's talk briefly about the NBA Draft Lottery, which will be held tonight in Chicago. And in a lot of ways, this is the end of an era for the NBA Draft. This year's lottery is, of course, the last one in which the team with the worst record, in this case the Phoenix Suns, gets a 25% chance of getting the number one pick. That's a system that's been in place since 1994. But starting next season, the three worst teams each get a flat 14% chance apiece at the number one pick. And given the ridiculous amount of tanking that was happening this season, we talked about it earlier uh, in the year, some kind of change like this was overdue. But, guys, do you think, first of all, that this year's crazy uh, tanking was the result of all these teams trying to slip in at the last second and kind of get their last crack at the old system before the change? Yeah, I mean, obviously it reached a point, you know, maybe by the middle of the season, you know, when the Bulls decided that they wanted to stop winning and Chris Depps-Porzingis got hurt and the Knicks decided that they were going to just kind of pack it in. It reached an embarrassing point where so many teams decided – that they were going to really go for it. And I think some of them almost decided too late to do that. And because of that, they're going to be at the back end of the lottery. But part of it too, was that, you know, the team that had kind of been weighing stuff down so much the last few years, the Sixers, they were so much better, obviously a 51 season that it kind of left a lot of other teams just kind of all right in the same spot. You didn't have a God awful team anymore in the NBA. I think everybody had 20 wins or so at least, you know, where normally you've got teams that got 12, 13, 14 wins. And so you kind of had all these teams bunched up together, all that wanted to lose, but, you know, you didn't have one team that was just horrible the way that we've had in the past. So it was a strange season. It, there probably was some of that, you know, what you're asking about, where there was some bunching up because of the fact that the lottery will change. But it made for a really odd season, but hopefully we, you know, we kind of move past this. I don't think that they've changed it enough, but we'll we'll see what happens in the years to come. It's also a little bit to do with the consolidation of talent that's been going around to where uh, Atlanta's best players are in Denver and in Boston. In Boston, yeah. And Chicago's best player is now in uh, Minnesota. And so there are a lot of teams that just are suffering from there just being a lot of talent on uh, the best teams in the league. But overall, like, yeah, like this is like the race to the very bottom. Um, like was steeper this year because uh, this is seen as a pretty strong draft class. Uh, Doncic is getting attention on top of you know the NCAA class, um, and so yeah, it it just made more sense for for the teams that had already been tanking to continue to do so. And so like that's one of the, I think probably the primary thing for for the new system. Um, aside from you know further down the lottery, um, which we'll get to uh, later, but but yeah, like just so that it's not embarrassing, so that these teams aren't compelled to once they get to the oh we're going to win 25 games we're going to win 28 games oh no no why don't we you know try to win 15 games instead of that that's a big difference actually yeah it it really does add up so uh since this is the last of that previous lottery era what are some of the kind of wacky things that you guys are looking at that are possible 
in in the odds. I'm I'm seeing that you know, for instance, Cleveland has almost a three percent shot at the first pick. That would be a, kind of a funny thing to happen. But what are some of the other kind of crazy things that to watch out for that are possible tonight? The Celtics have a little more than a four percent chance, I think, of keeping their pick at two to five. Keeping the pick that you know um, is between them and I think the Sixers, and they also have a shot, a live shot, at winning the title, which you know they've done once before, and they have the two to five here, and yeah, that was the Len Bias pick, which you know obviously I'm sure no one will bring up that <laughs> parallel at all, but that's still on the table. Yeah, no, I think that's honestly what you're looking at right now is just the fact that you've got two of the teams that are still left of the Final Four that have a shot at, at actually getting, I mean, a low one, but a, a chance at getting a number one, something at least good because of trades that they've made. Obviously, Cleveland uh, having gotten the Brooklyn pick, but also Boston being in the mix here as well. And that that's just what's insane about this is that, you know, you're, you're talking about basically, I, I think it might have been Dave McMenamin or someone like that, saying that very quietly this could be one of the most important nights and I don't even know if you have to call it recent Cavs history, but the fact that the Cavs obviously have a massive game tonight after the way they got shellacked in game one, but also the lottery odds, as we've seen before, even before LeBron came back, the idea of how much different things are when they have a, a good pick coming or a top pick coming, that maybe that does a little bit more to keep LeBron in place. And Cleveland, if they do, you know, if they get a number one pick, I think it changes the whole dynamic here with how deep a class this is that that makes it more appealing for him to stay. But also just with how good Boston looks right now and the fact that, you know, for the time being, what they've been able to do without Irving and what they've been able to do without Hayward, throw another top pick into the mix with that. And once they get those guys back, the development their young players have already shown. I mean, who wants to play Boston right now? And then you throw a pick on top of that. So I think the fact that you've got a couple of top-tier teams that could really do well here in the lottery, I mean, that's – the thing that I think a lot of people are going to be looking at that makes a huge difference. Yeah, and one more thing. Uh, we mentioned the Sixers earlier and how they kind of went through the process and tanked and created this tanking monster in some ways. Uh, they still have a 1.1% chance of getting the number one overall pick also uh, based on a trade that they made with the Lakers. So uh, all things to watch out for tonight. On that note, uh, just ahead of the Philadelphia 76ers are the New York Knicks, who you can say sort of got ahead of the tanking curve, but they just did it uh, when they didn't have draft picks. But but yes. uh, Innovative strategy to tank while you don't actually own your own picks. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they were ahead of all this. (laughs) Okay. Okay, on that note, let's move on to the action that doesn't involve ping pong balls. Uh, and that would be the playoffs. Let's begin in the East, where the Celtics held serve with a game one win in Boston on Sunday, cruising past the Cleveland Cavaliers 108 to 83. It was pretty much a complete clinic on the Celtics part. They uh, limited LeBron James to 15 points on five of 16 shooting, held the team as a whole to 31% from the field, only four for 26 from three, and four Boston starters cracked 15 points at the other end. Uh, each of their four players in that category shot 50% from the floor and for good measure they outscored Cleveland 60 to 38 in the paint so guys was this game one just a case of Cleveland you know making none of their shots which we've seen from them before sometimes and LeBron just having an off night or is this the resurfacing of some of the problems we've talked about with this team all season long well I I saw it as something that looked 
a lot more rhythmic and not necessarily just fluky. You know, I, I think that maybe the margin might have been fluky, but part of what Cleveland struggled with when you look back at last year's finals, and obviously this is a much different team, but just the sheer number of bodies that you can throw at LeBron James and kind of the fact that this team keeps coming at you. Boston, when you look at why Toronto struggled so much with Cleveland and why they've struggled with Cleveland so much over the years, it's because they basically only have one or two options to throw at LeBron. And so if there's foul trouble, if LeBron just kind of has it going, there's nowhere to turn for Toronto. Boston does not have that problem. Boston, you know, people laughed at the idea that Morris was going to take LeBron, but even if he'd failed in that regard, and he actually had really early foul trouble in game one. You've got him, you've got Marcus Smart, you can try to use Horford at times. You've got different people. Jalen Brown is there. You could use Tatum for a possession or two if you need to. And, and the biggest thing of all this is really that they can do that in single coverage. They don't need to throw doubles at LeBron. These are big enough bodies to where they can at least contain him for a few seconds. And by being able to do that, it leaves everybody else in place where they don't have to come off of shooters. And that's what LeBron thrives on, is having to send help or having to send a second person so that he can hit somebody, you know, at the three-point line. And that's the real challenge, is that because Boston doesn't have to do that, because Boston can leave their guys in place, they're blanketing the shooters, and they don't have the space that they normally have. Boston is the best team in the league at closing out on three-point shooters. That's why their defense is so good. And so I think that that actually seems something that, that might be sustainable for Boston and I think could be a real, real problem for Cleveland, LeBron will play better, but I don't know that his teammates will get the sorts of looks that they're accustomed to getting. Right, it's sustainable because they've been sustaining it. This is how they beat the the Sixers so thoroughly. They just they just chase those shooters all around, and like uh, the shooters who had just been uh, very very good in the series before, they like were not effective against the Celtics because the Celtics can play one on one defense against you at pretty much every position. Like Marcus Smart is their backup point guard, but he can like body up your center, your power forward, if they're trying to, to high post him. Al Horford can switch onto your point guard and just do a pretty good job. And, like, everyone in between is pretty much capable of, you know, if not you know guarding everyone on the roster, but, like, doing a decent job or at least like not being a speed bump against LeBron. And that's something you pointed out, Kyle, also on Slack, was that the Celtics... You know, they can roll out these big lineups. They they had Aaron Baines, you know, log a lot of minutes alongside Morris, uh, and, and they can kind of shift uh, guys that are huge. In addition to the length that they have on the perimeter, uh, you throw in Smart in there. He has like a six seven wingspan, uh, even though he's six four, and that causes a lot of problems. I think when the Cavs, especially, are rolling out that kind of small ball lineup that they had been so successful with in the first two rounds, which was LeBron, George Hill, Kyle Korver, J.R. Smith, and Kevin Love. That lineup was plus forty one in the first two rounds of the playoffs, but it was minus twelve in Game One. Right, and also you look at like what lineups are playing when Baines was out there. So they put Marcus Morris into the into the starting lineup, and everyone was like, "Okay, they're going small." Al Horford's even talking about post game, but they weren't really small. Like Baines played twenty five minutes, and for long stretches of that game, they were playing with Baines, Morris, and Horford on the floor together. That only happened for about eighty seven minutes uh, during the regular season. So this wasn't something that they just had in the toolbox all year. This is a big lineup that they had in there to play against Cleveland. And, like, they have the luxury of doing that because they have, you know, Al Horford who can, you know, run an offense. They also have Jason Tatum who's, you know, a rookie uh, who they're, like, saddling with a bunch of the creation on that in that lineup. 
which you you know I mean you look at the roster that's not like something that just immediately jumps out at you it's like oh yeah, yeah like we can we can run out this lineup that doesn't have you know too much playmaking whatever we'll just throw the rookie in there he'll get it done but except he, was. he is yeah, yeah he did <laughs> okay so does that suggest that the counter move then for Teron Lou is to give a lot more uh, minutes to Tristan Thompson he actually played pretty well in game one and the Cavs rebounded especially well uh, when he was on the court but he only played 21 minutes uh, is this something where we saw this adjustment earlier in the playoffs as well where you know you don't give Tristan Thompson that many opportunities, but then when it becomes panic time for the Cavs, they do seem to kind of turn to him and and try to get more out of him, and he has responded in the playoffs so far. Is that something that you guys are looking for here as well? I I honestly don't know what to think about that. I mean, I I get it. You know, I I think Ty deserves credit in the sense that he does try adjustments like those, and he even cited the idea of potentially using Tristan Thompson because of, you know, the analytics kind of point to him being a good option that he's played well against them in the past. I don't know if it works that well here though. I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I'm not sure what will happen, but the Celtics are really physical too. I mean, reading kind of a profile that Zach Lowe did on just the, the toughness that the Celtics show under Brad Stevens, he was citing an example where Shane Larkin of all people, you know, a player that, you know, has bounced around the league and has, basically kind of been last man on the bench in some cases and that he didn't dive for a loose ball and didn't go after a loose ball and that the Celtics didn't get the possession because of that and that Brad Stevens took him out as a result of it. This is a team that kind of has had drilled into it. One that they, you know, they should view themselves as an underdog um, because of the guys they're missing, but two that they have to play with this edge of this toughness or else you'll come out of the game and you'll lose the game. And so, I, I don't, you know, I, I understand that Tristan Thompson is a different sort of player than most of the guys that the Cavs have on the bench. But I also think to some extent maybe you can get away with having him in there. But I just tend to think that maybe this team doesn't have enough playmaking outside of LeBron, which that's been a concern the whole year without Kyrie and without a healthy Isaiah Thomas. But also that the shooting is an issue because, again, if you can't space the floor enough to really create for LeBron in one-on-one situations – and all of a sudden, you've got to play Tristan Thompson, too, a guy that can't shoot the way that Kevin Love can. And, you know, you can't play Kevin Love at the five. I just tend to think that, you know, no option is a great option against this Boston team. I, I still think Cleveland will make it a competitive series, but I don't know if it'll be because of Tristan Thompson. I mean, the other option is Larry Nance, who's been out of the rotation since the Toronto series. But, like, who, whichever one you pick, like, I think that they do need a few more live bodies on the floor. Because, yeah, like, you can space out and just surround uh, LeBron with George Hill, Kyle Korver, Kevin Love. And, like, Jared Smith is, like, I guess your liveliest starter aside from LeBron. But, like, this is a team that's just getting run over. Like, the the wings for Boston are just beating up the Cavs. And so, so yeah, you would think that, like, you want, you know, a sprier player in the middle than, you know, running Kevin Love out there at five and just, like, seeing what happens. And the other thing, obviously, is they the Cavs need to get more from LeBron. Uh, if you look at his game score, this is the John Hollinger kind of all-in-one metric to measure, uh, you know, roughly how well a player played. In game one against Boston, it was his worst playoff game in nearly a calendar year since game three of the 2017 Eastern Conference Finals against Boston, which was another Cavs loss, uh, and one of the 10 worst games of his entire playoff career. Uh, so 
that time last year, he came back and scored 34 points on 56% shooting, so kind of normal LeBron the next time around. And you have to assume that that'll happen again. This time, uh, he can't possibly be that bad again in back-to-back games. And then you start, you know, you guys mentioned the fact that if LeBron is going off, you do have to kind of bring help, and that's really what the Cavs' offense is predicated around, is finding those open looks uh, for those shooters. Another note on the Cavs' shooting, which was terrible in Game 1, was this is maybe the streakiest shooting team in the league or one of the streakiest uh, and this was the team that had the biggest gap in the league between their three-point percentage and wins versus their three-point percentage and losses uh, and I think that that's pretty illustrative of how this whole playoffs has gone for them when they're making their shots obviously they look like they're in complete control when they don't it's a real uphill battle and of course Boston is significantly better than Indiana who they missed a lot of shots against in the first round. Right. And so, and they were three for 23 in the first half on jump shots in this game. They didn't hit a three in the first half, which is a very, very rare thing for this team. So yeah, some shots are going to fall that, that hadn't fallen, uh, in game one. But it's also just, Boston's really, really good. I mean, Boston is good at taking away the shot, which we already talked about, but Boston is also scoring like crazy against this team, which, you know, everyone's been scoring like crazy against the Cavs all year. But Boston has Jalen Brown out there going nine for 16. Boston has like, Al Horford and Terry Rozier, who just can create their own offense and create offense for the rest of the team. And it's like the Cavs basically have to pick their pick how they want to get beat up in this series where they could put in Nance and just get like a uh, like more lively defender. But uh, that's like really not going to space the floor against a team that you really need floor spacing against. They just don't have enough players who can do enough things at one time to kind of match up here. So I'm. I'm confused. And like, again, like we talk about this every series where all they have to do is come back, win game two, and all of a sudden we're talking about, you know, playoff experience and whatever else. And LeBron said uh, he wasn't worried. Uh, LeBron's never worried. Uh, but particularly after losing the game one of, of a series, I think they have won each of their last five series in which they went down one nothing. So, you know, he's been there before, at least. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the thing that I always find really fascinating about LeBron and kind of how you can tell how much of this he's being cast with solely or by himself is the, the numbers that kind of highlight how well he shoots himself, but then how well his teammates shoot off passes from him versus how poorly they shoot when basically it's not a LeBron-created shot attempt. And the, the numbers were so stark in this first game, but it just makes you wonder who's going to step up. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm at a point now where I don't really trust any Cavs player to kind of be there night in, night out and play well. Kevin Love, you know, is probably the most consistent second option for them. Some nights it's been George Hill where he's had a really good game or something like that. But I guess they, they need somebody to step up really big here just because LeBron, I'm not even totally convinced LeBron is going to play well every single game from an offensive standpoint. I mean, they're going to guard him as well as any team in the East could, I think. That's just the sort of defense they have and the sort of versatility they have. And in some ways, I think this actually ends up being a better matchup for Boston in some ways without Kyrie Irving. You know, we haven't really talked about that much, but to some extent, definitely not as as big a kind of a gap as what we saw last year when Isaiah Thomas got hurt, but just the team's ability to kind of handle certain matchups gets even better and kind of increases when you don't have a player that size or kind of, Kyrie size on the court and so it's just it's a really tough matchup for Cleveland I mean it's a lot easier to say that now after game one 
But in some ways, we should have seen that part of it coming, that LeBron would really have his hands full trying to make things happen against this defense. Yeah, and that offensive component, I think, is especially important because of what you alluded to, Kyle, which was this is a bad defense. It's been a bad defense all season long, so they're going to have to you know, execute on offense to, to be able to overcome that. And so if they're having the kind of offensive power outage that they had in game one, they don't really stand much of a chance. But for what it's worth, our Carmelo model still lists the Celtics as just 59% favorites to move on to the finals at this point, uh, even after they held court in game one. So it's still early, still a lot of basketball left to be played. Yeah, they're only a one-point favorite in game two, too, which yeah, we can at home. go to now. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the West, where the Golden State Warriors beat the Houston Rockets 119-106 to 106 in game one of their conference finals. Uh, and this one was really not in doubt down the stretch. The Warriors kind of pulled away in the third quarter, and every time it looked like Houston might have some kind of comeback in them, it was always a Warriors answer, whether it was a Clay Thompson three or Kevin Durant just doing something ridiculous. Uh, and this was an offensive just show by the Warriors. They shot 53% from the field, averaged 123 points per 100 possessions, according to NBA advanced stats. And Houston's defense really offered not that much resistance. Chris, you wrote about the two defenses in this game, uh, and, and you especially focused on the fact that they switched everything. Houston uh, switched how many screens? Like 1,500 screens or something? during the season, uh, and that that could potentially slow down the Warriors' pick-and-roll game. But it seemed like the Warriors kind of knew that, and they adjusted, and they showed that they could beat you in a completely different style. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they so they tried to take advantage of certain elements. I mean, really, what it, I think what it really came down to after a while is that they had no answer whatsoever for Kevin Durant. I mean, he just was hitting turnarounds on everybody. You know, I, I basically said at one point and tweeted that anyone that played the Michael Jackson moonwalker game on Sega as a kid, like where the whole point of the game was just literally like to kick any criminal or villain that kind of came in and just knocked them down. It, it kind of felt like what Kevin Durant was doing. Or like he, he was incredible turnarounds from every direction, from every distance. And he, he's just so much taller than everybody in particular when they would switch Chris Paul onto him. And that's something that he'd like to do during the regular season as well that, you know, you figured might be a problem. But it wasn't just Chris Paul. He was kind of handing it out to everybody. But really, you know, when I look at last night, and I think Mike D'Antoni said this, no one thinks of him as a defensive mastermind, obviously. But he said, look, Kevin Durant is just so good that he's Kevin Durant. You might not really be able to do anything to stop him. And that we can kind of live with that. But if that's the case, you can't let other people go off. And, you know, you'll notice that Steph's numbers weren't massive, and that's kind of understandable with how much responsibility he had on defense. He's being picked on and going, you know, people going at him every play uh, in one-on-one situations. But Clay Thompson can't get that many shots. I mean, he got 15 threes and was asked after the game, you know, do you remember any game getting that many shots? And he was like, in a playoff game? No, not really. And they were all really, really good looks. You know, a lot of them in transition, a lot of them were just someone falls asleep. And that's something that Houston really didn't do much in the regular season. They're actually very good at defending the three-point line and closing out. But they just, you know, this is what Golden State does. They have so many good players on the court. They have so many back screens, and they move the ball so well that it's kind of like a game of operation or something where you touch a side or you go a little bit too far in one direction and everything blows up in your face and you leave you know, a dynamite shooter like Clay Thompson open, they made way too many mistakes like that. They got confused in terms of you know, whose man was whose. Uh, you know, 
after a missed shot, after a made shot in some cases too, and that just can't happen. You know, their defense is good, but it, it wasn't great last night. Right. For me, this was a story about the Golden State defense, um, which was basically they just gave uh, Houston any switch that they wanted. If you want to get Kevon Looney on Chris Paul or James Harden, God bless. If you want uh, David West on Chris Paul, go ahead. We're going to lay back here. Everyone else is going to sit back and play cover four, basically. And it worked. I mean, so James Harden went off. James Harden on um, his pick-and-roll possessions, they scored like 123 points per 100 possessions, which is a lot. But like a lot of that was on just step back jumpers, which he's going to hit on you no matter what, and he's going to get on you no matter what. And so if yeah, if you want to take that on Looney, if you want to take that on a big, like okay, you can you can have that. We have a we have a tall guy out there, and you know if you if you want to attack the paint, which uh, he did later when like it became apparent he had to, okay. But when Chris Paul was you know matched up with a big and just. All the Golden State defenders who are all long and fast and have good recover speed were sitting back there. He couldn't really get anything done. Like, he couldn't get by his guy clean enough to beat the help. And, like, that showed. Like, there really wasn't a plan B. This is a pick-and-roll offense that, like, has the had during the regular season the fewest passes per game where they just hold the ball all game. And if you're holding the ball and then you're not getting a good shot out of that— there really isn't a plan B built into that offense. Whereas with Golden State, the Golden State offense, uh, which is always near the top of the league in passes, they're setting you know off-ball screens, off-ball actions. Like they're not just playing four corners against you, like like Houston is. Like it's built into the idea of the offense that like oh no 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 like we don't have just one plan. We're not just making one read on this. We're we're just going to go through progressions almost like a quarterback. Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, it kind of turned into an isolation based game. Uh, there was a great stat from Second Spectrum that uh, Houston ran forty five isolation plays on Monday night, which was the most by any team in any game over the past five seasons and it sort of like took you know Houston already is an ISO heavy team but it took them to like this kind of comical extreme version uh, in which so many of their shots were in the last few seconds of the shot clock they had a few shot clock violations also in there uh, and they held the ball like you were saying Kyle so much and then the Warriors also ran a lot of ISOs uh, uh, because of what you wrote about, Chris, the fact that, you know, pick and rolls are, are difficult to necessarily run as well against Houston because they switched so much. And the Warriors, they didn't care. Uh, Kevin Durant scored 27 of his 37 points in isolation. He made more than half of his shots against all seven defenders that the Rockets threw at him in isolation, except Trevor Ariza. He was 0 for 1 against Ariza. They also ran the fewest number of picks for ball handlers uh, of any game that they had all season, and they still had this offensive explosion. So it was really like the Warriors showed that they could beat you any number of different ways that, that you will give them, whereas the Rockets, the Warriors' defense was able to kind of force them into almost this caricature of what they've been all season and say, fine, if you want to do that, we'll let you hold the ball as long as you want, and you will only score 103 points per 100 possessions, and we'll kind of shut you down that way. Yeah, I mean, it, that's what I think scares, should scare Houston if it, if it doesn't already. And this was the question some people had coming in. The, the Rockets were so good all season at the one-on-one stuff, uh, the ISO stuff. You know, and I think they deserve more credit for what they do in that regard because it's not just that Harden and Paul are good one-on-one players. Obviously they are, but their offense as a whole and the three-point shooting and the fact that not just three-point shooting, but the fact that Ryan Anderson and, and Eric Gordon and these guys are, are comfortable shooting from 30 feet out. And so, you know, we've written about this where they can stand at the hash and you have to kind of honor that 
And so nobody can even come help in an ISO or, you know, a pick and roll or anything like that because the floor is so spread. And so there's a reason that they get these really great one-on-one looks. And it's not just a fourth quarter tool for them. It's something that they do all games. And so they relied on it more heavily than anyone. James Harden scored more points out of isolations than any team in the league. And it wasn't a fluke by any means. He's just a great one-on-one player, especially if you can't help. But the Warriors have, kind of like the Celtics, what we're talking about, they've just got so many good defenders. They can throw long defenders on you. You know, they put Kevin Durant on James Harden, which is something that I think Chris Haynes, who covers the Warriors, said has kind of been in the, the works for weeks that they kind of plan to do that to try to, you know, show him more length at times. It's just going to be a hard team to do that against. I mean, you can wear down Steph, but you probably wear down James Harden. And there was a, a long seven-minute stretch where Mike D'Antoni probably left James Harden on the bench too long, but probably felt like he needed to do that because of how much Harden was doing by himself. But when you look at the numbers last night, the Rockets took 21% of their possessions into the last four seconds of the clock. That's way, way too high. And, you know, there's all sorts of data on the fact that when you get that late into the shot clock, that your shot quality is going to be poor, that you're less likely to hit a shot. Um, I think they made 35% of those shots last night. That 21% number was more than double what they had in the regular season, which is really high to begin with. But when you double that uh, against a team that is as good as the Warriors are on defense, I mean, you just leave yourself too few options as to what to do. Um, you get guys the ball in a situation where they can't even really get a shot off. So, I mean, that, that's just something now where they were so reliant on the ISO stuff all season that I don't know that they have anything else really to turn to. You just kind of have to go all in on it, and that's what they've done. But it, it leaves you in a really bad spot against a really great Golden State team. The, the other thing leaving them in a bad spot is a lot of their shooting has just gone away where Eric Gordon is shooting uh, for yeah. the playoffs 35%, uh, overall 32% from three. Ryan Anderson uh, down around 35% from three, like he's usually a much better shooter for this team. And the the component pieces aren't clicking. Obviously, like there's, there's defense involved with that in the playoffs. But the other thing is that these two stars, Chris Paul and James Harden, are two who have in past playoff runs looked like they've worn down a lot. And just from the sheer workload that they were under. And the idea was, okay, well, we have two of them now. We have two of them on one team, and they're not going to have to do quite as much. And so so they shouldn't get quite as tired, except they still are both you know, shouldering a huge amount of the, the work for this team because there isn't that system in place where all these other players are, you know, making off-ball screens or whatever. Like, if you watch the offense in that in that first game where you know they're just pounding the ball pounding the ball it's not like they're waiting for someone to get open like there's no action happening off the ball like there might be a little flare screen on the wing but that's just the simplest action that you can run in the league right now which is every team does and like oh you throw the ball over there for for a contested you know pull up or whatever there's nothing happening in there to just help the stars kind of not have to do everything on their own every possession Okay, so having said all that, you know, we've been kind of talking up the Rockets all season as this legitimate threat to the Warriors or this team that sort of resembles what the Warriors looked like when they were kind of at the same stage of their evolution. Did all of that kind of get dispelled in just one game? I mean, I know it's easy to react to a game one, especially one that was so spectacular for one team, uh, but it, I, I, it does seem like the Warriors showed what they could do when they really, really put their foot on the gas pedal and that we haven't really gotten to see that really 
much all season long, even leading up to this particular series in the playoffs. And then there were eye-opening moments, I guess, in this game one where it was like, oh, yeah, I remember the, when the Warriors, you know, really want it. They can do this. Uh, is that something really to be worried about if you're the Rockets, like this sort of wake-up call of, crap, we're up against the Warriors. This is this is what this team is capable of, not this team that sort of sleepwalked through the regular season and and or the first two rounds. Yes. I mean, that that's basically what I was getting at, is that this the nature of this loss, it, it, not necessarily deflating, but James Harden went off for 40. And really, I mean, the game wasn't that close at the end. Uh, you know, maybe within the last five or six minutes, you thought there's a glimmer of hope for Houston, but he went off for 40. Chris Paul, you know, watching him, he didn't play that well, but you look at his numbers, he, he played okay enough. Gordon was, I think, their third leading scorer, but he didn't play particularly well and hasn't for a while now. But the thing is, and, you know, I hate to agree sometimes with the inside the NBA guys, with, with Shaq and Charles Barkley, but it, it is such a, especially with the way they're doing it now in this stage in the playoffs, other guys aren't really touching the ball that frequently. It's probably not fair to expect that they're going to contribute a whole lot, you know, because they're not getting in a rhythm. But, I mean, if you're going off for 40 and you're James Harden, Steph isn't really a factor scoring the ball at the other end, not a whole lot, because he's worn down. But you don't really have a defensive answer for Kevin Durant. And so my, my fear here is that, again, Houston probably – this is about all they can do offensively. This is what they've relied on all season. Maybe Mike D'Antoni tries to throw in some wrinkles, but, you know, they, they couldn't really play their bigs after a while. They, they tried to, you know, the, with the switches. Capella had a couple really nice possessions on Steph, I will say that. But when they tried to throw Nene out there, it didn't work well um, on Durant. They, they, there just weren't a whole lot of other things that it felt like they could turn to. The one thing that I will say about Houston that maybe gives them a better shot at it they had to pull, I think it was Ariza with foul trouble at one point, uh, really early, where I think he picked up five fouls early. And as a result of that, they had to go to Gerald Green, which is a massive step down defensively, especially with what some of the stuff we're talking about as far as defensive alignment and stuff like that. But there aren't a whole lot of things like that that I can pull and say, you know, Houston, this just didn't work right for Houston. It'll be better next game. It just kind of felt like, you know, if you, your best player is going off for 40 at home, you have the kind of start that Houston had last night where Draymond looked like he might get thrown out the first three minutes. I don't know that there's a whole lot of upside here for Houston. It kind of felt like that was Golden State's game, you know, from probably the, the second five-minute stretch forward. They looked like they were the better team. So I, the one thing I can give you for, for Houston fans is that the the sh- quantified shot quality, which is the second spectrum, you know, you take all the camera angles and, like, where the defenders, who, who's where, their shot quality was better than their regular season. So regular season, they had about 56 uh, expected field goal percentage on average um, is the value of the shot. This one is 57. They just shot terribly. Uh, now, a lot of that is tied up in Harden uh, creating uh, pretty high uh, valuable shots for himself. So if you break that down, his passes to Capella and the, the, the offense he's creating for himself, that goes down in a hurry. So that's not really true. Um, and so, yeah, you ask, like, is this, like, you know, taking the shine off Houston? I feel like the shine's been off Houston. Like, they struggled against uh, Minnesota. They struggled against Utah in ways that we don't expect a team as good as we thought they were to struggle. Not that they didn't, you know, take care of business. They they won both in five, I think. But there were games where it was just obvious that, oh, there are, like, if not a single point of failure, 
there are relatively few things that need to go wrong for this team to all of a sudden be in trouble. And, like, do you know how many things have to go wrong for the Warriors to be in right. trouble? This is a thing where... So Chris Paul, like, generated, I think, 72 uh, points per 100 possessions on pick-and-roll plays last night. So on a, on the Clippers, yeah, you're you're sunk. On another team where... On another one of these super teams, like, you might be able to survive that. But, like, really, the whole plan here was that you have James Harden, you have Chris Paul, and in ISO and in pick-and-roll... They are just so reliable that you can build an entire team around just two players doing this, uh, these one or two things. And if you can take that away with, uh, with the scheme that Golden State threw out there, where just they erase Chris. I mean, the, the basic numbers look fine. His field goal percentage, whatever. He, he wasn't a factor really. He wasn't, he wasn't giving you any kind of penetrating edge, making the defense move around at all. Um, and if you can do that and just James has to do it all on his own, then this is a kind of an average team after that. Yeah, and that's what's really scary, uh, especially when it comes to thinking about the Warriors. And, and we had questions about them down the stretch, but there was a great line that I thought jumped out to me when I was reading Ramona Shelburne's recap of, of Game 1 last night, uh, where she said, Why push so hard for home court advantage in the regular season when you can steal it back in 48 minutes like the Warriors did Monday night? And I think that kind of sums up this season for the Warriors in a nutshell. They really paced themselves and didn't stomp on the gas pedal uh, and, and really saved something until they really had to. And I think they finally are on the gas pedal now. So, uh, but. You know, again, it's easy to react to game one. For what it's worth, the Carmelo prediction model at 538 still gives the Rockets a 53% chance of making the finals. It's loved the Rockets all season, uh, but it's also worth noting that that number is down from 77% just a week ago. I, I mean, I think it's, I don't know if I'll call myself a basketball fan. I am. I, it doesn't really matter, you know, how I feel about it. But I think one of the things that just was kind of a big eye opener, everybody has said, and I think it's true, that this is the best challenger that Golden State has really seen during this four-year stretch. You know, even better, I think, than the Cavs uh, a, a few years ago when they won the title. This is a 65-win team. They're going to have the MVP on their roster because James Harden's going to win it. Uh, and it, it's just really just you're kind of in awe a little bit of the fact that if this is kind of the best shot that Golden State can get from a team uh, that is that good on paper – and like Kyle said, they've, they've had moments where they look sluggish or, you know, they struggle a little bit against teams that aren't as good. But the Rockets are a damn good team. And it just kind of tells you, you know, this is still only year two of the Kevin Durant addition to this team. Really, can anybody hang with them? And we still haven't really gotten a definitive yes to that question yet. I mean, in the regular season we did, or felt like we did, because the Rockets took two of three from the Warriors. And, they, you know, it looked like the Warriors were trying in those games. Now, obviously, those games don't matter. That's what Neil was just saying about, you know, foot on the gas pedal. But, you know, if this ends in a sweep, I think we probably do need to rethink the idea of, you know, whether anybody can really hang with this team. Boston may have something to say about that at some point. I don't tend to think very highly of Cleveland's chances. But, you know, we, we, we sometimes kind of talk and, and make this more of a thing than it probably should be. They added Kevin Durant to a 73-9 and team. And, you know, the more you think about that, you know, the, the more obvious it becomes that, like, this should be what's happening. But it's still really, really amazing to just watch it play out and to see just how little a great team can actually do to stop a team like Golden State. It's incredible. 
in a big way, like it's uh, just if you're talking about just basketball fans, we really want to see that because uh, before Kevin Durant got there, whenever uh, that 73 and nine team would, you know, actually get into trouble, like they would, you know, just turn up magical things like Clay Thompson would have like a 40 point quarter or uh, Steph Curry would, you know, go off for 50 or 60. And like that just isn't required of them anymore. And, you know, they're getting older and uh, they're not going to be able to do that quite as often but there's no one around to just like grab them by the ankles and just like shake out like all the all the fun all the little things yeah, yeah 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 and so so yeah like you kind of look at boston and you see you look at them sideways and say okay so you have Kyrie coming back uh, you have gordon hayward coming back and you're gonna have this rotation that is just stuffed with guys who can uh hang with the warriors uh obviously they're gonna have to make decisions about uh rogier who's gonna be in his final year next season marcus smart is gonna be a i think restricted free agent so so important players are coming up for them but but yeah they they have a lot of talent like Philly obviously whatever happens with uh whatever happens with LeBron James whatever happens with uh Kawhi Leonard uh th- like there are teams that you know are going they're to They're both going to the Sixers. Right? Yeah yeah <laughs> if you or or they're both going for you know second round picks to the to Boston or whatever. Um Anthony Davis is coming to town but there are there are options for you know building a team that you know can can hang with this team but that means that like a lot's riding on this Houston thing where we came into round two saying, oh, we might have for once a round two that's meaningful. Like the Steph Curry still wasn't back. The the Rockets look like, you know, they might be vulnerable to the Jazz. And if the Jazz are that far behind the Rockets and the Rockets are this far behind Golden State, what, you know, when we get to you, when the games actually matter, which is the conference finals round, then, yeah, we're going to, uh, we're, we're going to have a lot of, a lot ahead of us if we thought the Jazz were maybe the best, one of the best teams in the league this season for long stretches when, you know, they were running off, you know, running over the league. Well, if, when things are, you know, actually important, like that's the difference between them and Houston and, uh, Houston and Golden State, then, yeah, the league, the league is a lot more stratified than, than we remember, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, obviously it's worth seeing how the the rest of this series plays out. Maybe Houston can uh, avenge that game one defeat and give a little bit more of a showing as things go on. Uh, but it was a great reminder of just how amazing the Warriors are and have been and continue to be. Okay, so that'll do it for this week's show. We're going to get back to you next week with even more playoff analysis. Our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Nina Ernest. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. Keep sending us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are also there, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Wherever you find the show, be sure to review and rate it. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.